right. I have got Ayaz Malik here. Do I say Malik or Malik? It looks like a Malik, uh, but I should Malik, say Malik. Malik. Malik, Malik. Malik. Well, it's a king. It's a king. It's a word. <laughs> the, the, Malik, the Malik's from Bihar, not from Punjab. It's very oh. important. <laughs> so, okay. So here's the situation, you guys. Imran Khan has been ousted. I went on Twitter and called it a coup. I had a podcast talking about it as a coup. I suspected um, that I was going to get an earful from my friends from Pakistan. Uh, and um, as I predicted... Uh, it seems like Ayaz, you were the one who was chosen, is designated to talk to, to intervene with Justin. <laughs> so Ayaz is a, a friend. He's uh, from Karachi. He's a friend of mine, long, long time friend from from the left. Uh, used to be in Toronto with me, but now is uh, in the UK. Uh, teaches in the UK, but um, if he's written a lot about Pakistan, about um, uh, class in Pakistan. Uh, about Imran Khan specifically and Socialist Project, uh, also studies in political economy. So if you want to look for his work there. Um, so we're going to go over four issues where I state what I think. And Ayaz is going to, uh, you know, he's going to he's going to tear me down. <laughs> uh, he's going to shoot me down. We have, uh, and we have, we have com comradely disagreements. Hopefully, hopefully we'll find some areas of agreement and uh, and then we'll see where we get before we wrap up. So first of all, the first issue to take on is uh, why I think it was a coup. So first of all, I think it was a coup. Um, I think... Um, you know, if you read Killing Hope by William Bloom or, you know, Noam Chomsky or any of these people that track these things, uh, there are more coups than, um, than non-coups. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, they don't, you don't have, in my opinion, you don't have to be a leftist to be uh, cooped, to be overthrown, although that does help, um, you know, that does make it put a huge target on your back. But, you know, whether it's uh, the Australian labor leader Whitlam, who was overthrown in the 70s, or Diefenbaker in Canada, who was kind of regime changed by Lester Pearson in, in the 60s, or Noriega in Panama, there's many other examples of people who are not like socialist revolutionaries who were overthrown. And it's not always like the military comes and shoots you in your office like, uh, like Allende in Chile, but, you know, it sometimes is these procedural um, events. So the sequence of events where the no confidence vote, um, you know, happens, the Supreme Court meets, the, the army official makes the statement, and then, um, you know, Imran is gone, uh, I think it, it has a very coup-like flavor to it. It leaves a coup-like taste in my mouth. So, um, so Ayaz, uh, you don't believe it was a coup, um, take it away. Hi, Justin. So thank you so much, first of all, for inviting me to you know, talk about this, 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 uh, the recent events in Pakistan. So look, there's no doubt that the US coups everyone. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Now, this in Pakistan, what happened was not a coup and simply because we know how coups happen in Pakistan and how the, what they look like. Uh, they have happened in our history four times before and five times if you count the Ayub Iskandar uh, the internal Ayub Iskandar coup uh, in 19, October 58. And what happens basically in Pakistan is that the triple one brigade of the military comes in, they depose the sitting prime minister or ex chief executive or whoever it is, and then the generals take over, right? Now, what happened a few days ago in Pakistan was not a coup, but what I would say is that it, it was a reformatting of the intra-ruling bloc arrangement which had emerged around 2016-17 with a stepping back of the military and the intelligence agencies 
from its active support of Imran Khan government. And we can discuss the reasons for that later. Now, in terms of the sequence of events, I think it only looks scoopy because some of the events I, I dis, which you know uh, you discussed in the previous podcast with the previous host uh, were not uh, were kind of incompletely narrated or insufficiently contextualized or you know sometimes I felt even the previous kind of host was very economical with the facts. So, for example, let's say, let's let me tell you the sequence of events. Right, it was already announced in December of last year that the People's Party, one of the opposition parties, will be leading a long march against Imran Khan in March of this year. Right. In January, already major newspapers and major columnists were reporting that there is going to be a vote of no confidence presented in the parliament soon. In early February, the main opposition leader, right, I mean, of the of the opposition alliance, Fazlur Rahman, he confirmed that they are now going to bring a vote of no confidence, a motion of no confidence in the parliament. And this is all in public record. It's all you know, reported in major newspapers. So all of this is happening much before Imran Khan's trip to Russia, which is late February. Right. Yeah. Uh, can I just jump in only yeah. to say I think that's why I think the Afghan question has more to, sure, do we can, to play. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we can discuss the Afghan question sure. a bit. So I'm just talking about the sequence of events in the previous four, five, three, four, five months. Now, this so-called letter, right, this so-called letter that Imran Khan talks, keeps talking about. Now, this is not even a letter. It's an internal diplomatic cable of a report of a private meeting held between a State Department official and a depart the departing Pakistani ambassador, just I think with Majid Khan or something like that his name was. And by all accounts, this kind, these kind of private meetings are standard practice among diplomats. Now, the, 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 the person in question from the State Department side, Donald Lu, that he, would, he has used harsh words, even threatening language, I think that is without doubt, right? Uh, one, of course, is imperial hubris. That's what State Department Pentagon people do. Two, of course, this particular person, Donald Lu, has a history of doing this. Right, has a history of using this kind of language, harsh language. For example, he's done this in his engagement with Nepal as well previously. Right, so there are reports that, that you know there were protests in Nepal as well about some infrastructure project that America and Nepal were involved in. But this cable is received in Pakistan. This internal cable is not a letter. Internal cable is received in Pakistan on March seventh. Now, as I said, the vote of no confidence arrangements much precede this. In fact, even after receiving this cable on March 7th, the Imran government ministers keep meeting and putting out joint statements with State Department officials. So, for example, they hosted State Department official, I think human rights repertoire or something, you know, some, some contradiction in terms that they usually have. You know, they hosted uh, this person called Uzra Zia, Azra Zia for the Islamic Organization Summit, which was happening in Islamabad around March 20th, 21st, 22nd. And they put out a joint statement at the time. Right. So if they had a report about this regime change operation going on and warned by State Department, apparently initiated by State Department officials, then why are you hosting State Department people, you know, two weeks later and putting out joint communiques with them and so on and so forth. Right. If Imran Khan knew about his Imran regime change operation, then then why bring up this only why bring this up only at a public rally on March 27th? Right, and why then host the state or department officials so amicably after the cable? Now the, the thing is, the thing is that Imran Khan. Sorry, you were saying something. I cut you off. Only, only that couldn't. I think that could be explained by like fear. Like you, you, you. If you think the U.S. is going to overthrow you, maybe you try to placate them a little bit and and play nice. Isn't that a? Isn't that a? I mean, if you, the thing is, that's why you, we need to look at these kind of the history of Imran Khan government and Imran Khan yeah. project a bit more, right? And Imran Khan, we know, has a history of making these kinds of false statements for mobilizing purposes and then backtracking on them later, 
right so for example just today just today he gave a statement in the newspaper that his government went after one of the chief just one of the supreme court justices during his tenure because that that chief just that justice uh, like supreme court judge was harsh of the military and of course the military was in alliance with him at the time and now he's saying oh we did this uh, this was a mistake by us today he gave this statement to post 2014 elections post 2013 elections he had this whole hoopla as to how 35 punctures were you know inserted in the elections to make him lose so basically he was implying that 35 constituencies were rigged and then he read this whole movement for you know one and a half years and then two years later when their whole movement you know died down collapsed or you know subsided he came out and said oh no i didn't mean that it was 35 punctures that was just political talk again this is all just on public record right so he has this statement of making these state he have the, he has this history of making these statements just to you know show up his power and show up his kind of core base and we can talk about that a bit later now as far as his resistance to big power pressure is concerned we know that at all moments that mattered this government and like others before it it's not it's not extraordinary in in any sense like others before it has mostly relented right so the prime example is how in 2020 Imran Khan you know uh, government wanted to make this block alternative islamic block with turkey and malaysia right uh, and they were going to open up a channel against islamophobia and so on so forth again we can discuss the merits or demerits of this that's a different question but that collapsed as soon as the saudis display, displayed any displeasure right as soon as they displayed a bit of annoyance these guys just backtracked right so what are, my point is that the government with such history of just making things up right which can't even show resistance to saudi arabia on this small thing is now expected to show resistance to U- us if it actually wanted pakistan to submit on this and we know pakistan and pakistan ruling bloc history uh, you know with regards to this so i just don't consider this a plausible scenario now us pressure was there and we can talk about this in a bit but i just don't consider this regime change thing a plausible scenario and maintain that you know that the regime change talk of imran is the usual pakistan ruling class pakistan ruling classes ideological bluster in the face of an extremely limited social and economic project right now that the us is not happy right so the question on the us is very important so the us is not happy with imran khan government due to russia's stance is is absolutely true that the military was not happy with imran khan with mouthing off against us and eu uh, on this uh, on this russia ukraine issue is absolutely also true right but that does not mean i think if you look at the sequence of events if you look at the you know social class forces that were developing this does not amount to an active american sponsored coup we know how coups look in pakistan we know how regime change looks in other places uh, the 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 motion of no confidence prep as i said earlier had begun much much earlier and that is very much due to the internal shifts and in alliances in pakistan which we can again discuss in a bit right uh, i think that being said my final point on this coup point the coup thing is that it does not mean that the pakistani military had no role right it has made a strategic retreat from its support of imran khan which was active from to, from earlier on in the decade uh, earlier on 2010s but definitely on 2017 onwards leading up to 2018 elections and the military has made a strategic retreat but as usual it has retained its final guarantor or final arbitrator role in the polity and so what happened a few days ago to sum it all up was less a coup and if parallels are to be made it's more like you know the 2008 scenario when the military dictator stepped down the musharraf dictatorship fell uh, or 
Even more importantly, the 2009 lawyers, lawyers movement long march when General Kiani, the, the chief of army staff at that time, eventually broke the deadlock by calling up Asif Zardari, the president at the time, and told him to restore the judges. Right. So fundamentally, I think what has happened is that the military has maintained its its arbitrator role, both due to its monopoly role in Pakistan's political economy, its structural historical weight in the polity. And again, this is conditioned very much so by the limitations and the timidity of mainstream political parties in Pakistan. And this these limitations, as I keep saying, are just not just subjective limitations. Right. Uh, they were part. They are objective limitations. They were part of the Imran Khan government, too. So. To sum it all up, I think it was not a coup, but a reformatting of the ruling bloc arrangement, which emerged post 2017. Military, however, played a central role in first withdrawing its active support of Imran Khan government, which set the context for the opposition move, and then finally retaining its final arbitrator role, or what you know in political science language we would call the articulating principle of the ruling bloc. And I think this is kind of you know in a, in a broad way this is kind of what happened. Okay, so. Um, oh, I wanted to make one note, which is like the Turkey Malaysia thing. I think that was a big deal. I think that had, you know, it's a question of who's going to be the leader of the Muslim world right. and define what Islam is, you know, in a political right. context. So, you know, I, I just wanted to say that was, that would also have generated considerable, um, anger uh, at Imran Khan from, you know, the US too, right? Uh, in, because of, you know, it suits them very well to have Saudi and Saudi's interpretation of Islam be the hegemonic one um, mm. in the world. Mm. Uh, the mm. other thing is, you know, this, I, I, you know, I insist that Afghanistan has a huge role in this, which is why I don't, I'm not surprised. Like, I think the Russia thing was, you know, the last straw a little bit, right. but I also think, I think that Afghanistan, uh, you know, the support for the Taliban, whatever, like the, the, the not being apologetic about the US being swept out of there mm. um, is, is, a, is a reason why the US immediately would have been working towards overthrowing him from mm. farther back than mm. the Russia trip. So that's, mm. uh, those are my few. Yeah. Um, I think it's on the, on, the, on the Afghanistan thing, I think, mm -hmm. look, it's institutional policy of the Pakistan army that they, yep. they both took money from the US and supported yes. Afghan Taliban. Yeah. I think that that displeasure of America and being so openly, I mean, one, of mm -hmm. course, in my opinion, it's good riddance that America is gone. Yeah, right? There's no, absolutely yeah. no two ways about it. For yeah. any ending, there is left, it's absolutely good riddance. Yeah. Has come Jahan Pak, as we call it. Yeah. In terms of its affecting uh, Pakistani polity, I think a lot of it played, it might have played out through internal uh, kind of restructuring or recalculation within the Pakistan army itself. And we can talk about, we'll talk about this a bit yeah. later. Uh, and I think not to do as such with Imran Khan itself, but in terms of how the recalculation is happening within the military itself. That's how I think the Afghan situation played out and is playing out. Okay, just so to see what we agree on, we agree pretty much on what happened. We agree on the fact that the military did withdraw their support of, of Imran Khan. And we agree that the US was unhappy with Imran Khan about Russia and about other things. Uh, but we just we just disagree on whether it's called a coup. So that's not bad, I'd say. No, and, and, and what was the proximate and immediate causes? Right. right. This is pretty good. Okay. I think we'll I think we're moving into an even more agreement area. So mm -hmm. this is about what Imran Khan was, 
Um, so, you know, I, I, like I said, I think the loss of favor for, of Imran Khan, uh, has mostly to do with foreign policy, but you have a lot of knowledge about Imran Khan and domestic policy and the, the ruling coalition or the coalition that supports him. So my understanding is he was favored by the army. He was the army candidate when he did win the election, but he somehow lost the favor of the army. I think largely over the Afghan question, mm -hmm. uh, tilting too far towards China and Russia. And again, to me, it doesn't matter that he wasn't Chavez or Evo. Um, and when Chavez was overthrown in 2002, briefly, people said Chavez was not Salvador Allende. When Evo was overthrown, uh, people said he wasn't Chavez. So there's always that kind of noise. It's hard to differentiate that from signal, so to speak. Um, but my point with that is he doesn't have to be a communist to be undesirable to the US, uh, even a small degree of independence is enough. So tell us what Imran Khan was and why sure. you think he lost the favor of the US. Sure. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I mean, I think this is more to do with more endogenous factors and processes which were happening. And this is a bit of a long answer, so bear with me, right? Because for to understand, to answer some of these questions, you need to understand what is the social basis of Imran Khan's uh, uh, party. And of course, his ascent to power is very important, the trajectory of the ascent to power, right? So very, very, very simply speaking, and I've written more about this indeed in other places, you can see that Imran Khan's core support base comes from a very post-liberalization fraction of Pakistan's urban middle classes, right? That doesn't mean he doesn't have support in other classes, but this is only a statement on his core or what we would call a hegemonic social base, right? The, the, the core, the social group which is most organized in his party, which articulates his interest through his party and through kind of almost his person, right? Now, of course, very simply speaking, again, no one can attain power on the basis of a core middle class group only, right? So the choice that PTI Imran Khan had was one of two, right? One, you could ally either with, you could ally with the subordinate classes or subordinate classes of Pakistan and challenge the prevailing power structure as a whole, right? That's one choice. The second choice that they had that you ally with existing dominant groups and institutions to gain power. Now, the choice that Imran Khan and the party made was very simple, was, it was the second one. It's very apparent as the second one that they allied with the dominant groups and institutions. Now, how this happened and how this choice was conditioned by other factors has been discussed by many. As I said, you can read my other articles. But the fundamental point is that the PTI came into power on the back of cracks within the dominant ruling elite by allying and gaining support from military establishment, right? And political brokers who are sensitive to military cajoling. Right. So, for example, the same panoply of big and medium capitalists, big and medium landlords, real estate mafia, sugar mafia, which populate other parties. Right. And the 2018 elections, we know, and this was again missed in the last podcast, the 2018 elections were the worst rigged elections in Pakistan since the last actual martial law election, which was in 2002 under General Musharraf. Right. And I can categorically make this claim. And it was rigged not just on polling day, that was not as important, but more importantly, what happened in terms of pre polling engineering. Right. And there is much evidence of this, the news reports of what was happening, the way allies and independents were cajoled and coerced to, you know, collaborate with the PTI, the way, as I said, a, a critical judge of the Supreme Court was hounded. Right. I mentioned this earlier through fake cases. And then uh, I can tell you what happened in our constituency. Right. We, I was we were there. I was in Karachi, the guy who was winning until until the time we went to sleep and we went, the results stopped coming in the night. We woke up in the morning and another guy won. The guy in the PTI, the PTI guy one. And so the, the electoral uh, commission is sort of army. 
at the time, look, at the electoral commission is, is, a, is a different beast altogether. But at the time, what was happening was to, around 2017-18, the whole process was being very much managed by the agencies, right, at that time. And even then, of course, I mean, as even to, in 2002, they couldn't get a majority, but they didn't want to get a majority because they, maybe they wanted to keep him subservient. I mean, that's a different question. But even in 2002, they couldn't get a majority for the King's party. Right to within Musharraf era, and then to, they had to get allies and independence. Now, so this is the this is the kind of context of Imran Khan's social base and his path to power. Now, this so-called tilt to China, right, uh, that Imran Khan and other you know other friends on the NDPLS left have talked about. I think this is not that simple. So, for example, the 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 discussions over the Pakistan-China leg of the BRI project, the CPEC, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, they were initiated in the BBP government, which is you know about ten years ago. And then finalized by the Sharif government, which came into power in 2013. And in fact, at the start of the Imran Bajwa regime, and I call it the Imran Bajwa regime, not Imran Khan regime, but the Imran Bajwa regime. The start of the Imran Bajwa regime, there was an actually attempt to move away or renegotiate with China, which was eventually quashed. Right? And you can look this up, Abdul Razak Daud, the financial advisor to Imran Khan, gave statements at the time, and there was a lot of consternation. Right. And this during this government, the CPEC projects have actually stalled or slowed down due to various reasons. There are apprehensions within Pakistan establishment over, you know, their relations with the US compared to China. There are disagreements over shares of different local fractions in the profit rent, which is being generated by the investment. So, for example, the biggest project, ML1 railway line, has been stalled for a long time. And one of the big problems is that it will actually undercut the military corporations kind of monopoly over freight transport. The military corporation works through road transport, and this is a railway project, right? Which is cheaper if you think of it rationally. Uh, and then there are apprehensions of local traders' business too. So there is actually a, the usual balancing act which is being attempted by Pakistan ruling classes, which I'm not sure how successful they will be. But it is what my point is: it not it is not as simple as Iran being pro-China while others being not so. So again, we need to know the specific history and kind of moves that happened in previous regimes than just taking Imran Khan supporters' rhetoric at face value. Right. As for the falling out with army, and this is this is a key point, right? This is the this is the meat of the thing. This was inevitable, right? Even the most pliant civilian rulers in Pakistan history have eventually fallen out with the army. This is we have the example of uh, uh, Khan Junejo in the 80s, was Zia's prime minister, eventually fell out with him. Uh, no army protege ever remains totally under their thumb forever. In this and in this case, in Ram's case, there were a few factors precipitating this process, right? So economic crisis was one factor, but not the main one. I think that sets the context. So PTI's economic policies, we you know, were very much the same kind of IMF cocktail of monetary tightening, demand compression, austerity, and liberalization, which has been followed by other parties. No difference, really, right? The ruling class generally in Pakistan cannot overcome structural crisis of political economy. Uh, this has been, and you can, I, for, for more, I talked about this more detail in a book on France Fanon recently, so you can read my chapter. Uh, so additionally, Imran, what, what, what distinguished kind of Imran Khan's party was kind of, they had a very technocratic vision of politics. And again, they have similarities with other with previous regimes as well. But this is very much due, this technocratic vision is very much due to the social base he represents, right? So indeed, such a technocratic vision of politics is very much in line with a very marketized vision of society, which had always been peddled by IMF, World Bank, and the prescriptions of good governance and honest, clean management and so on, right? But the thing is, unfortunately, or fortunately, <laughs> this is not how politics and economics work, right? So simply put, if one comes to power on the basis of reigning dominant classes, 
It is impossible to reform and restructure restructure them, no matter how honest or upright the managers, right? So again, this is an issue of the social and class alliance which is in power in Pakistan, right? It needs a much more rooted, long term. In fact, I would say a revolutionary project of transformation than one Imran Khan or PTI followed because they were allied with the same biggest monopoly forces in Pakistan, the military, for example, right? And and we know that in Imran Khan's time, the military's penetration of the economy increased. So it has been happening since the 60s, 70s, 80s, but it accelerated exponentially almost, right? So you see the the Water and Power Development Authority's chairman becomes a military guy, right? Like the Musharraf martial law era, the CPEC authority was formed, something to oversee the Chinese projects. And the guy who was put on, put the head of it was the former military spokesperson who it turned out had a huge ch- uh, franchise chain of Papa John's franchises, the pizza franchises in America. Right. I mean, these are the kind of people you are dealing with. Right. And then we know that, you know, uh, we work with labor organizing and trade union and so on in very factories. Now, you know, in the factories, uh, employers are now hiring army officers, retired army officers to suppress labor, uh, to suppress labor revolt. And this has been happening. So you can look at, there was an interview on the Jamhur, which is a left magazine, uh, with a Sin Sujagi labor organizer in Karachi. And he will, t- he, in that, he narrates how army officers have any, even penetrated the very apparatus of production itself. Right? So this is what was happening on the economic front. Now, the one of the major factors, another major factor of fallout with military was the Punjab provincial government. Right? So Punjab is the, for those friends who don't know, is the biggest province in Pakistan. It is the main seat of military power. And so they always want to keep it pacified and satisfied. And because of all the many alliances that Imran Khan made on the ascent to power, right? the chief minister candidate for Punjab was basically a compromise candidate whom no faction was happy with. So there was lots of, and I mean, Tariq Ali has now written about how he was, this candidate was also close to Imran Khan's wife and, you know, was a front man for the corruption there in the family. Uh, and people were speculating, oh, it's about spiritual, because Imran Khan's wife, some spiritual kind of saint kind of person. There is some kind of witch brew or something. I mean, the more prosaic explanation is that there were so many factions to deal with that this guy basically was a compromise candidate and also perhaps a front for, you know, this kind of uh, corruption. Right. So in Punjab, we know there were at least four factions, right? There was the Alim Khan faction in the party itself, Jahangir Tareen faction in the party itself, Chaudhary Sarwar faction in the party itself, and the PMLQ party, which was an ally of the PTI. And of course, if you have chief minister from one faction, it 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 basically you know angers the others. So this guy was a was a was a was a compromise candidate, and they ensue there was an ensuing infighting in Punjab provincial kind of apparatus, and there was a complete paralysis of the government and governance, which was a major sticking point with the military. Because as I said, military always wants to keep Punjab pacified, right? Again, all of this is on record in major newspapers, the kind of bureaucratic transfers that are happening. Like they, they, they transferred like five IGs of Punjab police within the first two years, right? Same with federal secretaries and so on and so forth, right? So the Punjab thing was a big factor. Now the biggest factor or the most proximate factor, I think, was Imran Khan trying to get his favorite candidate, which was the then ISI chief, intelligence agency chief, General Fayez Hamid, to continue in the role with a view to making him army chief later in, so, uh, in, November, in November of this year. So General Fayez and General Bajwa, General Bajwa is the current army chief, had started developing coldness over the former. So Fayez taking an outsized credit and being very open in support of the Afghan Taliban after American defeat. Right. So Fez, you know, unannounced, he appeared in Kabul and, you know, there was all that hoopla and all this is, again, all this is on record. Right. Now, this maneuvering within the army and some of the factors narrated, which I've narrated above, led basically 
eventually culminated, culminated into the crisis over the transfer of general affairs in October, November 2021, which is last year, end of last year, right? So basically what happened was Imran Khan wanted general affairs to stay as ISI chief, right? While the army command under General Bajwa wanted to transfer him to Peshawar Corps, right? So there was oh, a- This is big, it. This is the test. Who's in charge? Who's exactly. really in charge? This, yeah. this was a big fallout, right? This was a big fall between Imran government. So tensions, disagreements are already there, Punjab, economy, and so on. And this was the culmination point. Right. Eventually, of course, army command prevailed in Pakistan, as they always do. And the relationship between Bajwa, General Bajwa and Imran, irreparably damaged. So now it's not Bajwa-Imran regime anymore, or Bajwa-Imran IMF regime anymore, it's Imran-IMF regime. Right. So plus, as I have said, army also was not definitely not happy with Imran later coming out so openly against the US and the Russia-Ukraine situation and so on. Now, this, the economic issue, the Punjab issue and the army appointment issue eventually came to a head. Under new ISI chief, then the intelligence agencies withdrew from active support of Imran Khan. Right now, this was doubly damaging for the government. Right first, because PTI had no organizational base in the Punjab province. Again, the central province. Right in KP province, they have a base, which is why he did yesterday. He did a big jalsa in KP province. You can see in Punjab in Karachi, he has a long, he has a more class more wide base, but we can talk about it later. In Punjab province, the main place, he does not have an organizational party setup and that organizational party setup has basic was basically that political management of the party had basically been outsourced to the agencies to the army agencies right now when the support was gone the way was open for opposition politicians to basically drive a wedge within an already fractious coalition right both by luring pti allies and the party's own legislators who were defected to it in the earlier election right therefore what we see right is that the late last year, the opposition already has announced the long march, as I told you earlier in the first instance, right? And from early 2002, again, as I mentioned earlier, reports of no confidence motion are appearing. And again, this is more, this is before Khan visit to Russia, which is in late Feb, or the purported letter from the US. And again, has almost everything to do with the internal political economic shifts of the regime within Pakistan. Now, another factor, which is the question of why now, Right. So another question, because people keep asking, oh, why now? Why after the Russia thing? Now, another factor is, I think, the upcoming military tenures appointment in November 2022. Right. As we know, Imran once basically wanted to make General Fez, who's now previous ISI guy, now in the Peshawar Corps. He wants to him to make uh, he wants to make him the new chief of army. Right. Uh, majority Army High Command does not want this as they have now got a bad name due to General Fez and the pressure on Iran government due to has increased due to economic and political failures. Right. Now, especially the other political parties as well don't want Fez to become army chief because they think that Imran Khan wants him to become army chief because he will then help him win the 2023 elections. Right. So basically, the political brokers within PTI are not happy. Right, due to internal shifts, right, the economic disaster of the government. And now with the guiding hand or pressure of the army removed, they were also looking the opposite, the, the, the candidates, you know, the people who are now within PTI, the kind of electables or brokers and so on, they are now looking towards the next elections, right? And they want to they want to throw in their lot with the other parties because in their calculation, the PTI's ticket, electoral ticket, is now toxic. Right? They will, they will, if they'll run on the PTI ticket, they will be tainted. Right. So these then I think is, is this is the main kind of answer to, is to why it happens now. 
right? Now, this is a debate. I think this is how talking, I'm telling you their calculation, the oppositions, right? We can have a debate as to whether they should have waited and just let him play out the elections and so on and voted out in the elections, which he would have done. But their calculation I'm talking about, the why now question is to do with the military appointments too, right? And this removal of military patronage at the end of last year, right? So as such, again, coming back to the point, I think what has happened now is not a coup. Right. In fact, if you want to talk in those terms again, as I said, the period from 2017 onwards can be seen as a kind of undeclared martial law. Right. So we had high levels of repression and censorship. The Iran Bajwa regime kind of built on the apparatus of censorship and repression, which was being put in place by previous governments. Right. But then also increasing this quantitatively and qualitatively. Right. I can give a lot of evidence. My own close friends were charged with treason like during this government, right? Mm -hmm. So in this way, if you see the, if you see it in this way, then, you know, looking at all these internal restructuring, restructuring which are happening and calculations which are happening, the fall of the Imran Khan government and the realignment of the army may be compared, I think, to the post-2008 situation when Musharraf's, General Musharraf's hybrid kind of civilian military government fell. And military had to go onto the back foot due to some of the above factors insofar as their chosen or installed government did not work as planned and they had to withdraw their active support, but ultimately also, you know, maintaining their role of the final arbitrator or, you know, as I call it, the hegemonic or nucleus or articulating principle of the ruling bloc. And I think that's the kind of long answer to this. No, no, it's, it's, it's very good. I, I only want to say, uh, yeah, I, I'm, you still haven't convinced me that that doesn't mean it's a coup. But uh, I have a, only a couple of thoughts as you were talking. One is, you know, at the very beginning, you set this up as, uh, you know, you can ally with the subaltern classes and challenge the structure or door number two, uh, ally with the existing dominant groups and institutions to gain power. And I would just say, if you choose door number one, you will be overthrown by the US. So there's oh, yeah, another yeah. element of, you know, you know, we just, I just want to make sure we understand. And I'm sure everybody in the, everybody who ever takes power in the third world understands that yeah, yeah. door number one means you're going to have a coup. So yeah. door number two means you may or may not, <laughs> depending door on what you one is Because you are challenging the yeah. whole power structure, which yeah. in Pakistan's case is, you know, it's ultimately is given coherence by imperialism. Yeah. We know this, right? Uh, of course. I mean, if, for, for the people, for the friends who are listening, I wrote an article on this recently in Pakistan, uh, the English newspaper, The News, where I talk about, okay, what is the actual role of imperialism in Pakistan's polity and political economy and how that works, right? Yeah. And that's basically on shoring up the power structure and, and giving coherence to a very disarticulated, incoherent political economy. Yeah. So any kind of project which takes the first route, right? Yeah. The alliance which will have to will have to challenge this court court in total. It's, it's the short it's the short road to getting overthrown, and you have to prepare people for sanctions. You have to prepare people for uh, invasions potentially, and and we have to prepare the. I mean, for that we have to prepare it. Prepare the country, the people, the masses, the project for you know fundamentally what Samir Amin called delinking. Yeah, exactly. Right? We have to be linked. We have to basically restructure the whole production apparatus of the yeah. country. The only other that point is, the only other point is, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, the move of, of trying to appoint your own man to chief of army staff and the people you're uh, passing over getting upset by that. That is pretty, I mean, that 
anybody who wants to retain power has to do those kinds of things. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. You can't, yeah. Uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> you can be mad at him or not, but that just sounds like yeah, somebody yeah. who's yeah. trying to stay in power, which but then is you the have first to have rule of. Yeah. Maybe, sorry, 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 I cut you off. That's sorry. all. No, that's all. Uh, but, but, okay. I, you know, I, without holding you accountable for stuff that our mutual friends say, I, I, I looked, I wanted immediately to see what Asim Sajad Akhtar, our friend, uh, you know, another one of our, our mutual friends uh, had to say, he kind of said like, this doesn't have anything to do with the people of Pakistan, something like that. Like this, this is a inter ruling class maneuvering that has nothing to do with the people. And I, you know, I didn't I didn't agree with that just because I, I kind of feel like if you could make that case about any kind of party politics or anything that goes on at the elite level. Um, and I do think those things do have uh, severe impacts. The the other thing is, I think these demonstrations have been very big. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if you do try to move in a more independent direction, you will get called all of these things. I think you've made a pretty, you've convinced me that he was, he's, uh, you know, Imran Khan's not like a raging Democrat. <laughs> um, and I, I don't think, I don't think I could, I don't think that's a sustainable I wish position. it was, I wish it was cool. <laughs> to hold. I mean, I used to love him as a cricketer, but. Yeah, know. that's right. We didn't talk about how good of a cricketer he is. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things in your Facebook post that you said, you, you were saying, you know, this Imran Khan's not an anti-imperialist because, uh, you know, if he was an anti-imperialist, he would have done land reform, welfare policies, concessions to the working class. But I think of those as socialism uh, more than anti-imperialism, only because I think anti-imperialism is almost a prerequisite for socialism because of what I just said. Like, if you try to do land reform or welfare policies, you're going to be overthrown with U.S. help. So uh, anti-imperialism almost, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be something that comes first before a country is able to move in a more socialist direction. Mm -hmm. So tell me, uh, if do you still think this uh, coup or this over ouster uh, reconfiguration, <laughs> conscious decoupling? <laughs> do you conscious think decoupling, that's a good one. <laughs> that's uh, yeah, well, never mind. But that the um, do you think this is irrelevant to the people of Pakistan, um, or or is that is that no? No, no. I, I mean, look. I mean, of course. I mean, Asim, Asim. I think is making a very schematic argument in the yeah. in the space of seven hundred fifty words in his in his newspaper column, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. now we can talk about Imran's support base in a bit more detail, right? Uh, and I think, think that's that's that link that will link to the question of sovereignty and imperialism in a bit, right? So as I said, I think as I said, Imran has a core support base and he's very popular. That is absolutely no doubt. However, this is not a working class base, right? This is one mostly, as I said, the core is among urban, relatively affluent classes, except, as I said, in, in, in parts of Khaybar Pakhtunkhwa province, right? And in, in Karachi, for different reasons. Pakhtunkhwa, he, he has a strong on-ground party organization structure. In Karachi, is due to different reasons, right? And we can talk about Imran's, the special spread of Imran's class bases in a, a more if you want later. Now, however, in terms of this core group of his, right, which is in his party, in this social and ideological makeup, and there are no two ways about it, this is not a progressive social group, Justin. Their ideological inclinations have historically been very pro-military, 
very status type and very kind of you know you know the kind of reactionary islamic nationalist type which we've had in pakistan especially since the post 70s in the post 70s eras and what that has entailed basically if you look at their discourse you know uh, their 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 stated positions and so on is you know one much disdain for pakistan's ethnic peripheries right pakistan for pakistan's federal structure and for those who know pakistan's history you know this is how important that is and for pakistan subordinate classes right and i can give a lot of examples of these centralizing reactionary and highly authoritarian inclinations of the social group right so for example al jazeera i think a, a year or so ago did this documentary interview with pti's main social media guy farhan wirk and it's on it's on al jazeera it's called the documentary is like half an hour it's called war lies and hashtags right and there you know the guy says that you know our inspiration is alex jones and the american alt right and we he says these are his words i'm not making it up this is all public record he says that we consider ourselves the pakistani alt right these are the terms that he uses right then in power look at let's look at what happened in power in power during the imran bajwa regime there were periodic campaigns for a presidential type system right and abolishment of provincial autonomy the 18th amendment of the constitution in in, in. now there are 150 problems with parliamentary democracy bourgeois democracy and i can talk about that later we can talk about it but we know that in this context in pakistan's context the cause for cause for a presidential type system and abolishment of provincial autonomy is a highly reactionary demand if you consider pakistan's history with uneven development with kind of you know the separation of bangladesh the kind of you know uh the problems of you know geographic uneven development uh political underrepresentation and so on and so forth and colonial and post colonial patterns of unevenness right so this is a highly reactionary demand right or you can look at another example of this kind of very kind of reactionary tendency or streak within this social group and imran khan government is of course the completely reactionary cultural nationalist stances adopted by imran khan during and after before and after stenyon right so for example this is a guy Justin, you won't believe that this is a guy who blamed women's clothing for rapes. I mean, this is this is on record. I'm not making this up. You can look it up, right? He blames Bollywood for the decline in family values. I mean, this is the guy who's on his third marriage now, right? Uh, and so on, right? All of this is in the OIC summit, like recently last month. He kept on going as to how pornography is destroying the youth in Pakistan. I mean, not unemployment. not lack of absorptive capacity in the economy not the fact that you know 40% of people in pakistan die of diarrhea right uh, is pornography i mean this is this is the kind of thing so this is again i mean i can talk about this all but even these protests right mass protests definitely no doubt lots of support the protests are not really principled any something really something principled against military interference in politics they are basically saying as to why the military is not supporting our guy right as it had been doing for the past 4 years right why are they not supporting our guy this is the problem they don't have an it's a very surface level understanding of society surface level understanding of corruption which is very much as i said the the staple of imf world bank discourse and has been mobilized by right wing populist movements all over the world this understanding of corruption right now as for being called authoritarian or the issue of sovereignty right this is your second part of your question right i think these are abstract terms and you we have to give them content and concreteness through looking at okay what do these terms mean underneath their social and class in terms of this social and class content right now as i have been implying sovereignty in pakistan cannot be fought for on the basis of the current configuration of dominant classes right and as i have said 
Imran and his social base made the choice of allying the same dominant class in the military in their ascent to power. So basically, you can't fight, you can't fight for sovereignty with the social base because they are too structurally dependent on imperial patronage and structurally incapable of reforming, right? So the fight for sovereignty too, in my opinion, has to therefore, therefore needs a popular and mass base, which needs organizational, programmatic, right? And mobilizational strategies, which are of a very different radical and I think even revolutionary character, right? The PTI, as I have said, never attempted to do, do this because they were never interested in it, right? It's a different project, right? As I said, and as I said I mean, this, the, the protests are mass protests, I mean, but all right-wing populists have mass support. I mean, fascists have mass support. A thousand people gather summit, a thousand people gather summit. That's not the revolution, right? The PTI's core base, I think, is not a progressive social group for friends on the international left who are confused about this. It. Not a progressive social group, not in their sociological makeup, not in their ideological and in their ideological affinities. They have historically been a pro-military group with authoritarian and even elitist streaks, right? Even I would say, and I can go out and say, with fascist streaks, proto-fascist streaks, not fascist streaks, but but so if there are any affinities to be made, right? Affinities, you know, this this kind of middle class core group has many affinities with the right wing populist project in India of Modi. But and I I will emphasize this, and it's important not to misquote me on this. I don't consider Imran or his class base populist of the far right or outright fascist variety that Modi's are. Right? That's a much more deep, much more dangerous, much more reactionary project. Right? But for comparison purposes, what we can say is that it is the Modi and Bolsonaro projects, right? or in a less extreme case, the Erdogan project in AKP uh, Turkey, which are more congruent to Imran Khan and the PTI social basin project than the pink tide of Latin America. Right? Uh, you know, I know we, there were many complications, many specificities, but I think even that, you know, for example, Brazil, right? I mean, you know, the Workers' Party had a base in the MST, the landless movement, the, in the MTST, the, the homeless people's movement, and so on and so forth. So there was some kind of progressive social base and ideological program, which we don't have here. In fact, here, what we have, as I said, is this, exactly this narrow base and lack of social and ideological project which then leads to Imran Khan and the PTI being high on rhetoric, rhetoric and bluster, basically ideological bluster, right? So I think the ideological rhetoric and bluster, I think, has to be seen as compensation for a fundamental weakness, right? And one which is, and in my opinion, this is not just a subjective weakness, as I said, you know, only if they change their opinions. No, no, no. It's very much to do with the objective constitu constitution, the material constitution of this class and social base, and how the path to power that it took, right? And the kind of ideological discourses it partakes in, uh, which has a long history in Pakistan, as I said, Pakistan ruling classes generally have had no social economic project over the last 50 years at least, and arguably for 70 years now. And because of that, they've always had to resort to this highly reactionary type of Islamic nationalism to paper over what is basically a very shallow and weak social and economic project. And that is basically what the PTI is as well. So that, yeah, that's cool. I, I, my only thing is like with Brazil, I, I don't know, have you seen The Edge of Democracy, the, do, the documentary on uh, Netflix? Check no. it out. It's about Brazil and it's basically about like how Lula and based, um, more so, I guess, Dilma were overthrown in Brazil. It's made sure. in 2019. 
and uh you know i'm i'm told the brazilian left loves this <laughs> documentary too okay. uh but like it's uh it's basically you know what a lot of what you describe actually is closer to um Lula Dilma than than to Bolsonaro right. in the right. sense that while they had certain things like the Bolsa Familiar they had like some welfare policies they they never wanted to antagonize the the wealthy and the the mega elite of Brazil and so like that decision that we're never going to confront that we're going to let them in so they they had like a representative of that group as their vice president like T Michel Temer who basically right overthrew them in the end so it's like that like that bajwa you know thing you're describing like there is this thing of like oh let's let these people in and you know keep you know keep them close and make sure that we can and that we you know we'll be able to do stuff uh for the right. poor uh you know for the for the masses you know but without without antagonizing them and without getting overthrown right. and of course yeah. you can never do enough you right. know you can never you can never right. there's no there's no amount you can do for the poor that's that's right. too little uh from yeah. their perspective so mm -hmm. i you know I, I just wanted to say like as you were describing some of the stuff with uh with pti it sounded actually unfortunately uh more like uh you know lula dilma than, mm. than uh, yeah Bolsonaro. i think can i add very very briefly yeah. on this of course. yeah i think with the pti i think Again, I think this is the minor disagreement between us. I think with the Lula, with the Chavez, you know, these, these at some level they were anchored in, for example, you know, the, yeah, the Chavez the, is different because Chavez yeah, yeah. is, I think, a revolution. Like I think sure, there is yeah, a yeah. revolutionary process. Sure, so. sure, sure. But I think I think even before allying with these dominant classes, right? The PTI I'm talking about. Yeah. They had a very technocratic understanding of right. politics, right? And I, I think it was never it a project. Yeah. It was a very technocratic, very top-down, yeah. very moralistic understanding of what corruption is, what economy is, what politics is, which was always going to be always going to compromise with the dominant classes. Yeah. And we, we know that we know this. Uh, you know, I mean, we know Idi, right? So the biggest philanthropist in Pakistan, someone whose who's integrity, no one doubts, comes from a left background when he was alive. There's an interview of his on YouTube, you can look it up. And he says that, you know, when Imran Khan was forming his party, the former ISI chief came to me. Imran Khan, former ISI chief, General Hamid Gul, who, you know, made millions during yeah. the Afghan Jihad. <laughs> and they came to me and asked me to join this party. So he has always been close to this kind of, uh, this, uh, the more kind of reactionary, cultural nationalist parts of the state apparatus, right? And always had this very moralistic, individualistic understanding of corruption uh, and, you know, technocratic understanding of politics, which, you know, I think was all, was waiting to be co-opted Co-opted, or you know, they formed a willing alliance with these people, right. and you know, their 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 look, their finance minister came from the World Bank, as right. in previous governments. Right. Their right. their state bank governor comes from the IMF. Their deputy state bank governor comes from the IMF. You know, these these again, these projects of welfare and so on that that PTI supposed to be talking about, they were done in previous governments as well, and they're all kind of what you know what we call welfare neoliberalism, so handing yeah. out yeah. cash handouts to people. Uh, what's the guy? Microfinance. Uh... Yeah, yeah microfinance <laughs> is the 90s, right? But handing yeah. out cash, uh, yeah. handout, which is fine. I mean, of course, I mean, I, something yeah. is better than nothing. But, you know, in terms of 
uh, social welfare, right? In in during the previous government, Sharif government, it was in the Punjab that that education was turbo privatized through public private partnerships, right? In 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 Imran Khan's government, it's the health. Right, so PTI supporters talk a lot about oh, the institutionalized health insurance, but that's basically the American model of privatizing healthcare, whereby you cut the state public sector, yeah. right, and you give everyone some kind of insurance card of ten lakh rupees, I think it's or ten million rupees in this in this case, I think it is, and you ask them, oh, you can go to any private hospital and do that, and basically what that is, that is basically incentivizing the private sector. To charge the state as much as possible, right. to charge the public sector as much as possible, and is basically in term in the guise of welfare. It's the same mantra of private-public partnership neoliberalism that we've seen here, even in the UK with the NHS. Right? And inflation. I mean, that's a driver of inflation. Too, Absolutely. So, like so, so we we know, and again, Imran Khan is more is not unique in that sense. Mm-hmm. Shabaz Sharif government did this, as I said, with the education department. Imran Khan has done this now with the with the health department, right? Mm-hmm. So, as I said, I mean, again, this this technocratic understanding, this you know very moralistic understanding, with this this inclination towards the right, I think it has always been there, uh, and you know even and they were always primed to to form alliances with these dominant classes and dominant institutions rather than. You know, having any kind of inclination with you know working with trade unions, working with feminist movements, working with student movements, and so on, so on. Or, or you know movements from the peripheries and so on. And so on. okay. Uh, so my last one uh, is from uh, again f- from your Facebook post uh, where you you kind of said like Pakistan is always um, you know close to some kind of imperial imperialism. Whether it's you didn't say it exactly like this, but it was something. It sounded to me like you were saying uh, that. You know, China, you know, Pakistan is either going to be under U.S. imperialism or Chinese or or uh, Saudi. And I, I just, you know, I don't, I, I actually think you agree, uh, but I don't really think that there are multiple imperialisms in the world today. I think of, uh, I think the U.S. between dollar hegemony and the military bases and the ability to do coups and the monopolies on you know, tech and intellectual property regimes, brain drain and the control of the migration. There are all these things with, uh, which make it only one empire. Yeah. Um, and I think Saudi is basically a colony. And I think China is, uh, you know, semi trying to break at the present, breaking away from uh, a kind of a semi, semi-colony relationship, which it has been breaking away from since, I guess, 1949. So do yeah. you where are you at in terms of multiple imperialism or one imperialism or whatever yeah yeah no that's a, that's a great question thank you justin for asking me to clarify this yeah, yeah no i don't think the saudi saudi arabia is imperialist i think yeah, as you mentioned my facebook post and of course on, on facebook when you write these things you're always writing in shorthand and the premium premium is on brevity right so 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 you know i can now explain this a bit more so i think saudi is not imperialist i think if anything i would say that saudi is a sub imperialist country, right? Which is subordinate to the major world imperialist power, as I said, agree with you with America, the USA, but also cultivated as a regional hegemon in its own right, right? And I think here the theorization of sub-imperialism developed in context of 
Brazil uh, by Rao Mairo Marini, uh, and in context of pre-revolutionary Iran by Feroz Ahmed from Pakistan, I think these might be useful. These these understanding of sub-imperialism and people are not talking about Patrick Bourne is written about South Africa in this context. That might be useful in terms of Saudi Arabia. But again, I'm open to other interpretations right here. Uh, in terms of the U.S. being the single dominant imperialist country, absolutely, it's the linchpin of the global capitalist imperial order, right? Uh, and even though it's definitely weakening, it will remain so for a long time. Right, uh, and it's the dominant imperialist country for all the reasons you've given: dollar sovereignty, uh, you know, patents, control over patents, military hegemony, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, intellectual regime, multinationals, uh, you know, uh, controlling the commanding heights of the fire insurance, real estate sectors, and so on and so forth. Finance insurance, real estate sectors. And we know this, right? Uh, I don't think, in terms of China, it's an interesting question. I don't think China is an imperialist country, imperialist country at the level of the world system, right? Uh, there are some indications now. That China, while being a semi-peripheral and exploited country on the level of the overall world system, might be developing relations of unequal exchange and exploitation with parts of Africa and South Asian countries. So I'm going here on a very recent, very good recent detailed piece by Minky Lee in Monthly Review, which is a very good anti-imperialist journal, in my opinion, by Minky Lee, which, which basically traces patterns, patterns of investment, unequal exchange, and labor terms of trade that China has with the rest of the world and with other parts, with specific parts of the world, like South Asia and, and Africa and so on. Yeah. So I think- uh, as, Just a, a Minchi, I think the Q is a ch, ch sound in Chinese. Is it? Oh, I'm so sorry. Minchi yeah. yeah, Lee, uh, M-I-N- Q-I-L-I, and then monthly review. I just want people to read that because I also, uh, that was very interesting. A lot of the monthly review uh, stuff on China is very detailed, very, very interesting, and yeah. uh, highly recommended. That, that was Chinese part of an authors. issue on China. Yeah, that was exactly. that article. And that is called Semi-Imperialism on Periphery. It's a very good article. Yeah. And basically, change, as I was saying, it traces patterns of investment, unequal exchange, and labor terms of trade. Uh, so, and as Lee or Minchi Lee shows in the in the piece, like it says that the as the world system stands currently, China cannot become a core imperialist country. Right? It cannot become a core imperialist country at the level of the US triad, right? US, EU, Japan. Right now, in terms of Chinese role in third world, I think that needs more situated analysis. Right, and again, I'm no expert on China's relationship with the periphery, but from the little I've read, it seems to be more dependent on what kind of deal local ruling classes in particular countries can negotiate in that context. Right, so in that sense, I, I agree with you. I think if there's a genuine left project, if there's a genuine anti-imperialist project, it would have to play on emerging poles in the world system. Right? There's absolutely no doubt about that. As, as because, as you said, it would have it will it, the U.S. will try to sabotage it. We know this, right? Uh, but again, as I said, all of this, with my point about sovereignty and so on, all of this depends on having a class formation, having a social coalition in power, which could actually extract concessions and in negotiations with bigger powers like China, that would be beneficial for the masses, right? And in Pakistan case, and this is not just Imran Khan, it's either Imran Khan or previous governments, right, before him, the record of making Chinese investments do much that is useful for working class and masses in Pakistan is not very good. In fact, the record is not even very good of benefiting local productive capacity and local capitalist classes, right? So you can see, for example, you know, my friend Tayyip Sabdarid is PhD at Cambridge. Uh, you know, he, he's written about CPEC power projects in Pakistan and the terms of trade of the power projects. Our common friend Sayyid Azim also was at York with us, right? He's written about the labor practices in CPEC projects in Pakistan. So we know that Pakistan ruling classes are so completely, you know, incapable, structurally incapable of doing 
this, that they can't even benefit, often they can't even benefit themselves because of this, and they are internally fighting around Chinese investment. Now, my, my point, as I, so coming back to the point, so my point in that, you know, Facebook, little Facebook post was not kind of an analytically rigorous definition of imperialism. Uh, as I said, on that, I'm most in agreement with you. I mean, um, everything is agreement with you, I think. My point was more about that the Pakistani ruling classes need external benefactors and patrons to compensate for their weak social basis and lack of economic project and coherence, right? Now, those benefactors and patrons, we can call them whatever we want. We can see them as imperialist, sub-imperialist, or more prosaically as regional powers. The point is that they are structurally dependent on having an, an imperial patron, a foreign patron, whatever you want to call it, for as compensation for a fundamental weakness, which is a social economic and objective weakness, right? As I said, this is not just a weakness or a lack of Imran Khan government. This is a lack or weakness of every government throughout Pakistan history. I think Zaydeh Bhutto, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto is the only one who arguably tried to break away from such dependency through some kind of coherent social and economic program. Right. And his failure is a different matter of discussion, right? He suppressed the left, went after the ethnic uh, minorities. Uh, of course, religious hypocrisy started off from Bhutto era, and then of course displeased the US as well with the nuclear program. So and, and led the military back into politics, he was eventually overthrown. So I think apart from Bhutto, arguably, you know, this lack of social economic coherence, right, is, is not just a problem of Imran government, it's a problem of every government in Pakistan history. Right. Again, as I keep saying, this is not just a subjective failing, right? But which can just be corrected by having an honest person in charge or well-educated well experts in charge, right? But it it is fundamentally to do with the class basis, the social coalitions, the economic and ideological programs, and importantly, of course, the paths taken to power, right? The alliances formed in the paths taken to power, and then how those alliances then condition the forms of rule. Right. So barring all that, barring that, barring having a coherent project, which is rooted in Pakistan's masses, working classes and multinational working classes. In, uh, this is very important because Pakistan is a multinational country. Pakistan's multinational, uh, any project rooted in Pakistan's multinational working classes. I think all talk of sovereignty, all this rhetoric of independence, sovereignty, this and so on. I think it's just it's just simply that. Right. It's a rhetoric. It's simply kind of I think it's talk and dissimulation for the purpose of papering, uh, kind of papering over shallow and kind of almost non-existent social economic projects and strategies. This is a strategy which has been followed by the Pakistan ruling bloc forever. And, you know, we see kind of almost the pinnacle of this happening. Uh, in Urdu, we say, pe jana. I don't know what, how to call it in English, but, uh, you know, we see almost the kind of logical culmination of this happening with the Imran Khan uh, a PTI project where you know this taken over this kind of ideological bluster rhetoric as compensation for fundamental weakness and it's almost become a force of its own in a sense right That's yeah all right all right so what have we got <laughs> in summary <laughs> uh okay I think Sorry for all this for all this long winded mostly yeah we've it's been almost exactly an hour so that's pretty good um, I think we agree on what happened, but not uh, about whether we're going to call it a coup, which is whatever. It is what it is. Um, 
you are worried that anti-imperialists are going to get the idea that Imran Khan was a leftist or progressive. Um, and I agree with you, he's not a leftist. That's fine. Um, I think though, uh, I, I guess my concern is that in all this analysis, uh, I, I don't wanna, I, the reason I can't blow off the idea that he's an anti-imperialist is because primarily of the Afghan question. Now, again, you could say, you know, he didn't, that wasn't on his, under his say that that happened. But I do think, I don't think, I have a hard time believing that it is purely coincidental that it happened on his watch when it could have happened essentially any time in the past 20 years. Um, well, the U.S. withdrawal. Yeah. From, but it, from was, it, was, it was happening. It has been happening for a long time, right? No. I know, but it it it's yeah, sure. They've been withdrawing for as long as they've been no, there. But but, <laughs> but when <laughs> yeah, but when they actually with and and again, if uh, for what I'm what I'm going to be watching for, I'll say is that if if the if there's a reopening of a drone base there, uh, then I I will feel like I know why he was overthrown. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so that, that, that's what I will be, that's what I will be watching for. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the rest I think are, uh, pretty small, pretty small potatoes. Is there anything you want to make sure that anti-imperialists listen to this, listening to this? Um, no, I think, you know? I mean, no, but my, my only point with the whole, with all of this, I think that yeah. our friends on the left in Pakistan, outside, wherever, I think, yeah. you know, we have a, we have a wonderful tool which has yeah. been provided to us, <laughs> uh, to do analysis and which is yeah. you know, class analysis uh, and you know looking at okay how do econ economics the social the political and the ideological relate to each other how does society and ideology relate to each other in all the historical specificity right uh, now of course imperialism is part of that but it cannot no analysis can simply be a u.s centric analysis right so we have to start from okay what are the class formation social formation and so on and i think if we if we start if we start from a u.s centric analysis then a lot of you know specificity gets missed out right a lot of history gets missed out lots of rifts and shifts and torsions and tensions and contradictions get missed out right so we have to understand okay imperialism yes we know it's a worldwide structure but okay how does it instantiate itself how does it concretize itself mm -hmm. how does it work in that specific context in that specific historical structural mm -hmm. context uh, and in pakistan's case as i said it's not that it's a one-to-one -one correspondence that you know a state department says something and it happens it's more about the structural context in which pakistan's ruling classes operate historically they've operated and the kind of tensions it generates in the polity in the political terrain on the ideological terrain and that is the kind of you know instead of one-to-one -one determinative schemes we need to look at this as a more you know complex structural causation rather than you know instrumental in a sense that one person says this and the other person just goes and does it so and for that we have a wonderful tool called, called class analysis all right all right i i like uh, u.s centric worldviews and um one-to-one -one correspondences but you know <laughs> potato potato <laughs> no but you know that's that's fair and i think you know that's that does explain a lot of why we're why we're debating um mm -hmm. is is that that kind of question of how the, how how important nuance is um you know how how crude 
um, U.S. control is versus, you know, how it infiltrates itself in uh, specific situations and forms uh, alliances with uh, ruling classes and, and, and forces to ensure that it uh, keeps a foothold in these places. So, sure. yeah. Yeah. thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Justin.